And the irony of talking about rest after lunch on a Saturday <laughs> as the last session, I think this is the last session, right? Is that all you want is a nap right now. So I promise to make it, well, I hope to make it uh, worth your while in applying the principles that uh, Ed Welch has talked already to you about. I'm very thankful to be here, guys. You, this church is an incredible encouragement to so many beyond just in the greater in the northern Kentucky area. So, um, just what's going on here, the the folks I've gotten to meet many of you. Um, it, it's amazing what the Lord's doing here and through His Word. So let's let's go to that word now as we just think about this idea of of, of applying rest. Some of these principles here. So I'm going to give you a weird word to talk about with rest, and that's in your handout there. In your introduction, the main concept I want you to get here for now is that rest is a calling from God. Here's the weird word, vocation. Vocation simply means calling, but, but that's not what we think of when you hear the word vocation. When I said vocation, what popped in your mind? Probably your job, your career, right? But vocation, in its core sense, just means calling. It's the calling of God. It's the voice of God beckoning you to do something. Okay? And so we think of it largely with work, as you said. We have different lines of work that differ according to God's calling and gifting of you. One of Martin Luther's greatest uh, treasures that he gave the church was the doctrine of vocation that he said, look... Calling isn't just a matter of going and being a priest or a monk. It's not a clergy class. Calling can apply to a blacksmith. Or to use a more modern example, a plumber, a policeman, a doctor. Those are callings of God. A housewife raising children. Those are vocations. They are callings. So we think of it in terms of work primarily. But there's lots of other layers of vocation too. Just to put it in context for you. There's the family vocation, meaning you are called in your unique situation to love and serve whatever family God has arranged you. So if you're married, it's your spouse. If you have children, it's your children. But all of you are brothers or sisters or sons or, or daughters. You, part of your vocation in life, why God put you on earth, is to imitate him in the context of those relationships. So family's vocation. Another layer is your, your citizenship. You are called to be a good citizen of whatever society or country you're from. So it, that means submission to authorities. That means contribution to the common good through quality work that you're doing. There's the citizenship. And then the big one here that you're all aware of is there's, there's a vocational aspect where you're called to the church. You hold a role within the church. You have to do lots of one another's that I'm sure Pastor Brad has talked to you about almost ad nauseum, right? You have responsibilities towards one another. It is the calling of God for you to act for the good of others. So all that to say, you're not going to be quizzed on all that. I'm just trying to put it in context. You have lots of different layers of calling when we think about the vocation that God is calling you to. And one calling that you don't often think about as a calling is the call to rest. Rest is a vocation. It's a call from God. God beckons us as part of our responsibility 
to represent him in a physical world, he beckons us to rest. It's not that work is your calling and then rest is the unfortunate thing you have to do occasionally in order to get back to work. It's that rest is itself part of your calling. How do I know this? Well, Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 says that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Friends, does God need rest? No. Why doesn't God need rest? Because he is the creator, whereas you are a creature. You are the one created. So God doesn't need rest, and yet he took rest. Okay? So this is not a common, this doesn't show us that, that rest is essential to his capabilities. Okay? But it is essential to his character. That's a really important distinction, okay? God doesn't need rest because of his capabilities. He's infinite. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't close his eyes. He doesn't rest. He doesn't need that in terms of his capabilities, but it does show his character, okay? And so that distinction is really important for us to consider as we apply this understanding of rest. God's work displayed his character by, sh- I'm sorry, God's work displayed his character by showing his power, creativity, wisdom, and sovereignty in days one through six. All of that was put on full display. But God's rest displays his character by showing the joy and delight he takes in the display of his own glory. This is interesting and fascinating and very instructive for us. God's rest shows the joy and the pleasure he takes in the display of his own glory. That's a, that's a really important thing to understand about God if we're going to understand what rest really is. So Genesis 1 and 2 is also full of God's assessment of his own creation. You know the phrase that comes up a lot of times in there, right? When God looks at his creation, what's his opinion? And God saw that it was good. It's interesting even the phrasing there. God saw that it was good. Didn't he know it was good beforehand? Yeah, he did. But the fact that it's arranged physically and he now is looking down on it, there's, there's, a, there's a direct... Uh, uh, observation and conclusion. God looked and he saw and it was good. That's repeated all the time. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then when we came around, it was very good, which is nice. So why are all these statements about God's, why, why include all these statements about God's opinion of his own work? It's because it, it, the Bible needs to, it's, it's making it clear at the very beginning that God took pleasure in a well-made world. He took pleasure in it. He designed us, this is where we're getting to us now, and he designed us to do the same thing. So our understanding of rest is going to be attached to that very truth of who God is and what rest was to him. Because he didn't need to, he didn't need to rest because he was tired. He rested as an act of appreciating and taking pleasure in the joy of what he made. And so rest for us is a platform for appreciating 
what God has made. That's what rest is. We were created in the image of God to act like him. But with the important distinction that we have to consider for our purposes here. Okay? So, we're, we're supposed to appreciate his creation like him, but we have an additional thing that rest does for us. We are not the creator. We are the creatures, right? So here's what I need you to get, okay? You were created with limitations. You were created with limitations. That is one of the hardest things to learn about yourself, isn't it? As a teenager, you learn it by the fact that you can't stay up all night and still function normally the next day, okay? As a young professional, you learn it by the fact that you're not good at everything. In fact, you're kind of terrible at some things, okay? And all of us learn it in various ways, but we're always bumping up against our limitations, okay? So we are limited both spiritually and physically. We're limited spiritually in the sense that you only have one perspective You only have one set of eyes out of which you look. You only have one set of experiences that is your story. And that is very different than what a lot of people see and what a lot of other experiences are. You have one perspective. You don't have an omni-perspective like God's. We're going to pick up on the importance of that in a little bit. But my point now is you have one perspective. and you also So that's your limitation spiritually. You're also limited physically, which means you have one body. And that body has needs. That body needs sleep. That body needs food. That body needs air. That body needs mental rest at times. That body has limitations. Why am I spending why am I spending so much so much time emphasizing this, okay? Because we have to maintain the distinction between the creator and the creature. And we also have to see that the creature rests in, in imitation of the creator, okay? But with these additional limitations. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 50 with me. Psalm 50. I'm not going to do a full sort of exposition of this, but I want to give this as a text that basically establishes what I just said, which will then be a launching pad for us to practically think about what rest can look like in your life. So Psalm 50, this is a beautiful psalm that's about the incredible generosity and infinite abundance of God to human beings and to all of the world. But I want to focus on verses 12 through 15, just a short little part of it, that emphasizes that God doesn't have limitations like us, and that part of our understanding of ourselves has to be that we are limited and need things from him as receivers. So, Psalm 50, verses 12 through 15, this is God speaking to his people. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. 
This is in the context of a rebuke of God to his people. They thought that bringing all these sacrifices was doing something for God. It was feeding him. It was pleasing him. God needs us. God needs us to do all this sacrificial stuff. And he's saying, whoa, 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 time out. You think I need this? I don't need this. If I were hungry, you'd be the last person I'd tell. I own everything. Everything is mine. I am the giver. You are the receiver. You are not the giver. And I am not the receiver. Don't mix it up, is what God is saying. And my dear friends, this is so essential for Christians to understand about themselves. It's essential for all people to understand about themselves, but Christians alone believe this. We have the faith to see God as God. So don't mix up the creature and the creator distinction. You don't offer anything to God that he needs to run his world. And that has incredible application for rest. In addition to that, God offers to you everything you need. He's the sole source of it. Not other things. He's the one who owns everything. He's the one who gives. He's the one who provides. That also has major implications for rest. So, embrace your limitedness. Embrace the fact that you are a creature dependent on a limitless creator. Embrace your calling to rest. That's how you're going to do it. So let's apply this, these principles of rest here. As you have in your outline. Rest is intentionally ceasing from essential labor as an act of faith in the provision of God. The Sabbath principle is instructive here. Before the whole law was given to Israel, where they had the Sabbath laid out in sort of formal sense... The Sabbath principle was applied way back in the wilderness before they'd taken the promised land and God was sending them manna. Do you remember this? Do you remember the story of how manna fell? Guys, I mean, seriously, every morning bread fell from heaven. That's incredible. And on one, and and God's instruction was, do not take more than one day's worth. And what do you think Israel did? They did it. They're just squirreling it away. What was true of that manna the next morning that they tried to save from the day before? It was rotting. It had maggots in it. It was disgusting. Okay? God was teaching them, I provide for you each day. You can't provide for yourself. You can't save up for yourself. You can't get your own guarantees. Stop. So that applied every evening except for one evening. And that was the evening before the last day, the seventh day. And in that evening, he said, gather up two days worth, boil it, cook it, take care of it. Because on the next day, it's, it's not going to come. That's a day of rest. I want you to cease from all labor. And so as the story is told in, uh, as the story is told there in Exodus 16, actually Exodus 16, 23, I'll just read it to you. This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow's a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will take and boil what you will boil And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. 
But sure enough, Israel is like you and me. What happened? Many of them listened. Many of them did not. And they, and they just ate this, the same day's thing. And the next day they went out to gather it and there was nothing there. Okay? God was teaching them something. God was teaching them that they had to trust his provision in his timing and in his ways. There's a day where they had to rest from this. They had to trust the Lord. So that began a principle that carried through as they became a nation and the law was given down and they were told not to work on a certain day. Here's what I want you to think about is the context of Israel having that command about the Sabbath because then that will help you understand the context of the same principle. uh, The same principle applied to your context. All right? Think about it. They were surrounded by enemies. Seven to ten nations that hated them at any given point and wanted their land. They wanted their crops. They wanted their people. Okay? So, Israel as a nation was in competition with all these other nations who wanted their land. And all the other nations had seven days a week to accomplish what they need to to get an advantage over Israel economically, in terms of their agriculture, in terms of their military positioning, in terms of their political expediency, in terms of their trade and shipping routes. They had seven days a week to get a leg up on Israel, and Israel only had six days a week to do anything. So that rest on the seventh day was an act of faith. It was an act of faith in a God who alone can provide and who alone can defend them. It took faith for Israel to cease from their labors. They had to believe that an unseen God would provide for them in a visible world. And so this same principle carries over now, today. Christ In my reading of scripture, my understanding of it, Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament law, including the Sabbath. And so I don't think the Sabbath carries over in its formal form from the law. But the principle nevertheless remains to us that you are a finite person who must entrust yourself to God for your provision. And what that looks like practically is you will have in your life Times of rest where you are not anxiously laboring to secure things for yourself. It's an act of faith. So that leads to the next bullet point there. In a busy culture, you have to plan quality rest. Rest is against our very nature, friends. We will either continue to work or we will rest in the wrong ways. By simply doing half-hearted work where we're stealing little bits of amusement instead of actually resting. So, guard time for rest is, is, is the sub-point that we have there. You have to guard time for rest. So, though the form of Sabbath, I think, is, is fulfilled in Christ, I think the principle still instructs us Since we are still physical creatures with the same rhythms of life, we have days and those days assemble into weeks and those weeks assemble into months. 
and then eventually years. My point is this. Divisions of time are important, okay? You have to think about dividing your time appropriately as a steward of the time that you've been given. So stewardship requires planning. The Sabbath was a specific day that God had designated for one type of activity against another. But you need to plan rest in your own life. Otherwise, you will only take rest when you feel the need for it. Okay? So this is a distinction that's really important. If you don't plan rest, you will only take rest when you feel the need for it. But there's two problems with using your feelings as a gauge of when you should take rest. Okay? If you, if you use your feelings or your, your felt need for rest as the gauge for when you should take it, then there will be times where you just push through because you convince yourself, I don't, it's not really all that overwhelming that I feel the need for it. And you keep pushing and you keep pushing and you keep pushing and there will be consequences for that. Or on the other hand, sometimes we kind of have a lazy streak and we too easily feel like we need rest and then you give up too quickly, right? So if, if how you're feeling about your, your, your need for rest is the only gauge for when you actually rest, you can fall off the horse on two different sides there. In fact, some of you never really feel the need for rest. <laughs> you drive through... A bri- you would drive through a brick wall if you had to. You ignore your body's need for re- re- uh, rest, which is ultimately a rejection of embracing your, your limitedness. Practically, this makes rest become sort of an emergency-only type of remedy. You finally burn out. You finally get sick. You finally get so fed up with, with the world that you withdraw into your angry cave. Okay? I do this. And some of you, on the other hand, always feel, always feel like you need rest. You've gotten into habits of letting yourself take rest when you don't really need it. So you could push yourself to do more, but you don't feel like it. And if your feelings are the gauge of when you need rest, then that solves the equation. Remember, how you feel in the moment is not the best gauge for when you need rest. Sometimes your feelings are telling you to stop working when you should press through. Greatest example of this is in what I do, we hear a lot about writer's block, okay? Where you're trying to sit down and there's no creative juices that are flowing. And so you just, you just, you, you guys have all written papers or something like that or prepared a lesson. And you're trying to make that blinking cursor move down the page with all of your might. And you're just like, ah, I don't want to do this. Well, the only way over writer's block is not to like then rest and let the, the muses of poetry rise within you. The only way through writer's block is you keep moving your fingers. And it's garbage that comes out. But then you go back and you turn garbage into slightly less garbagey garbage, okay? That's how it works. So my point is, you have to plan rest. Don't gauge it on how you feel, okay? So then, let's keep adding to this practical outcomes here. Selecting activities that are truly restful. Rest is not merely slipping into some distracted mode. Half-working and half amusing yourself. 
This is often how I take rest, right? I'm having an incredibly stressful day. I'm going from this to this to this to this to this. And I'm finding myself going to the bathroom, you know, going to a public restroom. And as I'm washing my hands and drying them, I'm pulling out my phone and reading ESPN articles on the Ohio State Buckeyes. Okay? That's my team. Sorry. That probably angered a lot of Cincinnati fans or UK fans. And and I'm just sort of sitting there reading until somebody comes in the public bathroom and then I'm putting my phone up and I'm going away, right? But my point is, that's, that's not designated. I'm not designating that time for rest. I'm not designating that time for work. I'm just kind of like, it's just happening. It's not planned. And rest involves appreciating. So, 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 so activities that are truly restful, here's a principle. Rest involves appreciating the goodness of creation without having to wrestle with it for the moment. Okay? I'll say that again. Rest involves appreciating the goodness of creation without having to wrestle with it for the moment. That's a good way to think about genuine rest. Sometimes this simply means you can rest by having just a really good meal that's not rushed, by the way. That's the hard part. But actually enjoying Enjoying the flavors that God designed us to enjoy. Having a good meal can be an act of rest because you are appreciating the nature of reality without having to wrestle with it for a moment. Or sometimes rest is a good night's sleep. That's, by the way, not numbed by a glowing screen in the room. Okay? But a genuine... And not, don't feel guilty if you have a TV in your room. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying... We have to, part of what I'm going to be applying is we have to think about what rest actually is. Getting us as close to contact with the the beauty of God's creation as possible. Sometimes rest means sitting quietly and noticing things that you don't normally give yourself time to appreciate. You all know the phrase, stop and smell the roses. That's like the oldest phrase in the entire universe, okay? And there's a reason it's the oldest phrase and there's a reason we keep using it. Because here's the insanity of who we are as people. We work our fingers to the bone to afford a little living situation, a house that can have rose bushes around it, and then we don't ever look at the rose bushes. Okay? That's how insane we are. But rest means that I, like God, appreciated the beauty of his own work and his own creation. We are like him imitating that. We are stopping and appreciating uh, what, what the beauty of his world looks like. And sometimes rest means doing something that has no real purpose beyond the enjoyment of it in the moment. You know? When I go uh, to the beach with the kids on our yearly vacation to Outer Banks, North Carolina, we make sandcastles. And we make sandcastles that are incredibly intricate. And it gets, like, it gets pretty intense in terms of like my sandcastle versus your sandcastle. And all of us know that within five hours, the tide's going to come in and decimate the sandcastle. So what's the value of doing sandcastles? The value is... It's so, it, it, it's recreative. It, it, it just, it, it refreshes you to have to interact and manipulate reality in a way that's pleasing to you in the moment that doesn't have to 
it doesn't have to work for me to eat that night, right? There's, there's an element of rest to that. So let's keep building here. Next point. In a distracted culture, you must remember the difference between amusement and recreation. I hope this point might be actually the best take home for you. The difference between amusement and recreation. Amusement is the type of activity that requires as little exertion as possible from both mind and body. Amuse, amuse, means without thought. Okay? That's what amusement means. By the way, don't think that I'm going against any, everything that's amusing. I'm not going that. I'm just trying to make a distinction between that and recreation. So in terms of amusement, we cannot make strict categories when it comes to what activities we should think of as restful or not. But we ought to be able to make personal choices based on a realistic understanding of the effect that certain things are having on us. Is this truly a restful effect what I'm choosing to do with my free time. Amusements have no restful effect on us because of how we tend to use them. We use them largely to, here's your key word, we use them largely to distract us from work rather than to actually recreate us, recreate as we're going to get to. Amusements distract us. That's how we use them. They distract us without building us up. They absorb us without edifying us. They occupy our interests without enlarging our appreciations of God's world. That, that's, a good, that's a good distinction. So let me give you some examples to just get some concrete in here. I've never heard the phrase, and you haven't heard the phrase, you never heard the phrase binge-watching until about five years ago, okay? But you all laugh because you all know what it is, right? Binge-watching television shows because now we have entire seasons of shows that we had no access to before, all like downloaded right there. Well, not downloaded. I forget how it works. You stream it, but I'm not a techie person. But it's in my Apple TV right there. And the practice of binge-watching is relatively new, but it has only revealed a tendency we've all had from the beginning to immerse ourselves in entertainment without any direction or purpose to it. So, so the function of binge-watching is largely distraction from the stresses and the difficulties of life and work. So here's, here's the thing. Shows often give little, little points of thrill or little little jokes of humor to keep your interest. But if you really stop and think, is my appreciation of God's world expanding? You can't honestly say yes to that in many cases, okay? So don't think I'm anti-Netflix. I love Netflix, okay? But what I am anti is the mindless use of Netflix or anything else, okay? So that's why I'm trying to make these distinctions for you. We, 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 uh, we shouldn't be against all of television, but we should choose how to use television in a way that, again, expands my appreciation of God's creation. So the result of that is 
selecting the kinds of shows that build my vision of the world and expand it, that offer me some kind of insight into reality as it is, okay? And when we do that, I'll get, to, I'll, I'll get to this in the recreation part. When we do that, we will use it in a very different way. Because we're not relying on it to merely be a distraction, then the whole binge impulse kind of gets its, its legs cut out from under it. Okay? So that's, that's one example of amusement. Here's another example of amusement, if you really think about it, is perusing social media. Okay? So here's the thing. I have Twitter. I like Twitter. I use Twitter for news. I use Twitter to catch up on people. It's fine. I'm not anti-social media, so don't jump on me. Okay? But here's what I am saying. The endless scrolling that you look through. And we all get in these. You ever, hey, I'm going to check Facebook real quick. Hey, I'm going to check Twitter real quick. Hey, I'm going to check whatever it is real quick. And that real quick that you expect, yeah, maybe five, ten minutes, you've done it for at least an hour. This endless scroll. Images and brief comments passing before your eyes. We sit transfixed, trying to pick out something that stirs our interest, something that distracts us from the, the chaos going around us, especially when you have young kids in the house. What we've done there is we've turned off our brains and are only passively receiving random thoughts and, and sort of the self-indulgent expression of other people. Social media can be an amusement. Okay. Now, of course, it can also be used to expand our understanding of reality and appreciation for God's word, but we usually fall into these ruts of misuse if we're honest with ourselves. So I'm just challenging you. Ask yourself the question, what effect is this having on me? What effect is this having on me? That's what I'm challenging you to do. And the action then is think carefully about what effect it's having on you. Does this activity really help me cease from work in such a way where I'm appreciating God's creation? That's an aspect of rest. Is this the best activity for it? And that leads us to recreation. Recreation is the type of activity that has a renewing effect on a person's body and soul. This These activities recreate. That's the essence of what recreation is. Have you ever thought about that? If you just pronounce it differently? Recreation is recreation. It recreates you in a number of different ways. So we all know the difference between watching the evening news about seven people being murdered in some part of the downtown area and going outside and taking a walk with your kids or your wife or your roommate or whatever it is. You all know that there's an experiential difference between the two. Which one's more restful? If you define rest as lack of physical activity, which one's more restful? Sitting and watching the news. If instead you define rest as putting yourself in a place where you have a greater chance to appreciate God's creation and the beauty of it, which one's more restful? Obviously, the walk, even though you're getting up off of your couch, okay? So I'm just challenging us as we think theologically about rest, it's going to change the the little decisions that we're making in the use of our time. Recreation, recreation renews a person's perspective of many different things. 
recreation renews our perspective of life in general. There, there's one thing it renews. Of just, of just a person's life is renewed. You, sh- you ought to do things that remind you that life is more than your work. Okay? Do things that remind you that life is more than work. Saturday morning golf can be wonderful recreation. Sunday afternoon naps can be an even better form of recreation. A Friday evening boat ride. Travel to a different town to get ice cream. It probably tastes very similar to your town's ice cream. But what you've done is you've exposed yourself to a little bit more of, the, of this world and how it's running and working. That's, those can be very recreative because they aren't part of accomplishing work. And they also expose you to more direct evidence that God is really smart in how he designed this place. Do these things asking the Lord to, re- to, to renew your perspective of your own life. This is a major part of joy. A couple of weeks back, for instance, we, my family and I went up to the Hocking Hills area in Ohio to visit my sister. And honestly, we had no business taking the time to do that. I was way too busy to do that, but we said... No, we, we, I love my sister and her family. I, I, I like trees and hills and things like that. And Hocking Hills has things like that. So let's go up there. And I just remember on the, on the Saturday morning, after we'd rushed to get there, we had a late night, we stayed up late talking. In one sense, I felt more exhausted because you just get through a long work week, you're driving all these hours, you're getting five kids packed and loaded and unloaded. And in one sense, I was more exhausted. But I remember sitting on the Saturday morning outside drinking coffee that wasn't as good as the coffee in Louisville, but it was, I was drinking coffee on her deck, outside these swaying trees on a crystal clear blue day. And I remember having this kind of experience, this moment. I'm not, I'm not getting mystical and weird on you. It was just a moment of extreme thankfulness to God in realizing that my life in Louisville is not the center of the world. Those are the types of things where you capture these little moments of rest where you realize you're not the center of everything and your efforts aren't the center of the universe. God's are. And it was just this moment of genuine rest. And I'm very thankful for that. It freed me to go back then to Louisville with a renewed perspective that as soon as Monday hit, I was very tempted to totally forget about, right? Here's another thing it renews. Recreation renews a person's perspective of, of their troubles, of their problems. Have you ever watched a really good movie that put your problems in perspective? So just so you know that I'm not totally ripping on television, I'm going to give you a good example of a movie, okay? The movie Cinderella Man, watch the vidangel version because there's a little salty language here and there, okay? But Cinderella Man is about uh, a boxer, uh, James Braddock, who was in, the, uh, in New York City during the Great Depression. And it's a story, basically, how he's a washed-up boxer, and they give him a sucker match, basically, where he's the sucker, and they have the championship come and beat the snot out of him so that they can sell tickets. 
Well, he ends up actually winning that fight. And then that begins this long, arduous career where, or, 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 or match by match by match, to try to feed his family in New York City during the Great Depression. And the way the story is told is just a masterful reminder that however big I think my problems are, that, that movie, it's a fictional, or it's a semi-fictional representation of something that actually happened. And it reminds me, I'm not in the 19, early 1930s in New York City. And I am therefore thankful that I'm not thinking about how to feed my children. I'm thinking about what a big jerk my colleague is, right? Not that I have any jerk colleagues at Southern (laughs) Seminary. But but good movies will do that. Good books will do the same thing. You know, here's another book. here's, here's, Here's another example of this. Isabel Wilkinson's The Warmth of Other Suns. It's a book about the great migration of... African-Americans from the Jim Crow South in that era going up to northern cities to try to find just a better living situation that wasn't characterized by so much of the racial tension of the South. And they end up finding that the North has just as many racial tensions. They're just different in the way they talk about it. And what that book does for me, it's, it's a weird way of finding rest because that's an awful story in many sense. But it reminds me, it expands, it expands my understanding of the world and how it works. It puts my problems in perspective. It increases my compassion for people that are not like me. That's good rest. That's recreation. And finally, recreation, just on, under this point, recreation renews a person's bodily conditions. So in other words, God made your body to move. Those of you who exercise regularly... You know this. You know the pleasure of regular exercise, don't you? Any, any runners in here? I'm a wannabe runner. I run, but I don't call myself a runner. It's embarrassing to look at what I do in terms of what's called running. But my point is, I, it, it, when I first started it, I just, I just it, out of sheer just thinking, I need to exercise more, I started taking up running. It is absolutely miserable. It is absolutely terrible. Every step is torture. It's not fun. And then three weeks into it, you suddenly realize, wait a second. This actually feels really good. And I'm actually sitting at my desk at work kind of thinking about, can't, can't wait, I can't wait to get off of work and go start running. I'm like, what's happening to me? <laughs> but my point is, there, you're, you're sensing the recreative function of physical activity. So... This isn't a physical fitness talk, okay? But what I will say to you is this. If you don't have a regular physical exercise uh, regime that you do, just don't, don't go research what burns the most calories or much increases the most strength. Don't waste your time doing that right now. What you need to do is just, is just realize that physical activity itself brings pleasure. So just, just go and do something that you enjoy. Start walking, honestly. Start walking. Start taking up a, a hobby that, that requires. It will have that recreative effect. That's part of God's design for you to take rest. Okay? That leads us to our next point, that recreation brings pleasure, and pleasure in the right things honors the Lord. Isn't this amazing that part of your vocation, part of your calling is actually to take pleasure? Take pleasure in things. From a biblical framework, pleasures occur when people use their 
capacities, their senses, to hunt out and appreciate the cleverness of God in creation. That's what pleasure is from a theological sense. You don't have to turn there, but let me read for you a couple verses from Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. This is a psalm about the generosity of God. The pleasure of God in your pleasure of his creation. Pleasurable activities, therefore, are activities that bring us into closer recognition of the beauty of God and creation. So, I just want it to be really clear to you that pleasure is not the devil's invention. Okay? When we hear the word pleasure, we think of those awful machines in, the, in bathrooms at truck stops, right? And all the things that you can buy there that promise all these weird pleasures and you're just like, ugh. But pleasure, pleasure is God's invention. Satan only twists what God created as good. In fact, that's actually the meaning of the word perverse or perversion. To pervert something means to twist it. To take something originally good and to misuse it, to misrepresent it, to alter it to a different end. So pleasure is not something to be avoided by holy Christians. It is something to be sought after by faith in ways that God has designed. So pleasure in the right things, this is is what's amazing about rest, okay? Pleasure in the right things actually reinforces a Godward perspective of life. Pleasure in the right things actually reinforces a Godward perspective of life. Our hearts were designed to find beauty in what God calls beautiful. Pleasure is merely our internal indicator that we found something beautiful. So when we seek pleasure in pornography, we are calling Satan's perversion of sexuality beautiful. And we are calling God's version of sexuality boring. And foolish and not beautiful. But when we seek pleasure in the sexual, sexual relationship with our spouse, in the context of the entire relationship of who they are, we actually reinforce a Godward perspective of life by seeking that pleasure. Another example is when we seek pleasure in the juiciness of gossip, whether it's online chatter about celebrities or whether it's gossip about people we know, we want to be in the know about the people at church, we are calling Satan's perversion of intimacy beautiful. That's what gossip is. It's a perversion of intimacy because you're in the know and you're letting this other person in the know and they love the fact that you're telling them this awful thing about someone else because that's a bond between you. It's a perversion of intimacy. But when we seek the simple pleasure of intimacy as God designs or friendship as God designs, 
than knowing different kinds of people and hearing their stories and talking to them at church and having them over and just enjoying getting to know someone. That is that reinforces a godly understanding of life. Take pleasure in that. Rest in that. So the action point for this, an action for this main point is to put yourself in the way of God's cleverness in creation. Look for beauty as he describes it in the word and as you find it in his creation. And finally, here's the best gauge you can tell if you're doing that. Is thankfulness. Godly pleasure expresses itself as thankfulness to God. So thankfulness is an indicator that you're getting the right kind of rest. So that story I told you about sitting out and, and drinking the coffee under the swaying trees in Hocking Hills, that, what, what made me know that that was a moment of genuine rest, a moment of genuine worship was I found myself just instinctively saying, thank you, God, for this. This is, this is just, thank you. This is wonderful. That's an indicator that you're thinking rightly about the beauty you're experiencing because you're, you're connecting it to the beautiful one. You know, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul when he had to call down false teachers in the early church, sometimes, like when he wrote to the Corinthians, he had to call down and rebuke, rebuke these teachers, or rebuke actually the church for listening to teachers who wanted them to indulge in sexual immorality. Okay? And then other times, Paul had to rebuke false teachers who were doing something very different. When he wrote to Timothy, he had to warn Timothy against false teachers who tried to please God by abstaining even from the good forms of pleasure, the good forms of sexuality in marriage. So here's actually what he says in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So... That's a helpful principle as we apply and try to discern how ought I to be resting? What things should I be doing? What things are out of bounds? What things are wrong? Thankfulness is a great indicator on whether you're using something rightly or wrongly. So let me ask you in closing here. When was the last time you were thankful in your rest? When was the last time you were doing some pleasurable recreational activity and you thanked God for it? I think the application, the action is just simple. We need to thank God in our rest. You'll find it more restful. Thank God for your recreation. Don't think you're stealing away something dirty or bad by not working every minute of your life. Thank God for your rest, and it's an indicator that you're doing it by faith. God has called you to rest because he has made you a limited creature who needs it. He designed you to take pleasure in it by recognizing that he is the one running the world, not you. So we have a few minutes left. If there are questions, I just find it's helpful on these more practically oriented ones 
to see if there's any questions that I can answer for you. And if there's not, that's fine. Again, we're talking about rest. You're probably already in quasi-nap mode. Yes. Yep. I do. This would apply to anybody here, guys, but, but especially in college where you're less structured externally, put structure to your week. Here's, guys, I'm not a planner. I hate day planners. I hate looking at the calendar on my phone, okay? So this is not from a nerd, like a, a, a calendar nerd, okay? But it is helpful at times, especially in college. If you can think of your day in modules, just do three a day. So in other words, you have a morning. What am I using my morning for? What am I using my afternoon for? What am I using my evening for? And you have three of those a day over seven days a week. Then you just say, you just assign it, plan it, assign what am I going to do? Where am I putting rest in there? And then you don't have to steal guiltily rest or, or stay up late at night looking at social media because you just need some downtime or something like that. You know that there's a designated time for your rest. I won't recommend how many numbers of modules you should give to rest versus work. That's going to change for everyone. There's different seasons. But that's what I would suggest. If they can think of Friday afternoons and evenings is like the time they get to look forward to to just go have a great time, that actually makes it easier to stay focused in the other, in the other portions. Yeah. Good. Other questions? Yes. That, I'm telling you, man, that is the question of all questions. How much is too much rest? It, it, it depends on a number of different factors. It depends on your physical situation. It depends on sort of the, the, the daily pressures of your context. It depends on what season of life that you're in, right? So the, here's my best tip for you is you best make those decisions in community. You don't make that decision based merely on yourself. So... Look at different people in your life and see how much rest they get that you want to emulate and kind of like construct what you think is best is true of you. Because I have some friends who I feel like are psychotic and they work way more than me. And I have some friends who I feel like are a little bit lazy and don't push themselves enough. And I just kind of like put myself in the middle. You know what I mean? That's not the most holy best advice in the world. (laughs) But my point to you is... You need, you need to have those conversations with other people who are doing similar things or in similar seasons of life as you. Sorry, I wish I could give you something more helpful. It'd be nice if I would just say 20% of your waking hours should be rest. It'd be awesome. But unfortunately, we can't. I, one more hand, yes. Yeah. My wife and I find that, found that exactly to be true. Our most dreaded nights was date night, exchange night. Here's why. No, here's why. We would do a date exchange. In other words, we watch your kids we'll, and, and I'll watch yours. Okay? We, we switch that. We actually preferred the nights where we watched the other kids because 
for, to get our date night in, we'd have to pack all of our kids up, have them fed at a certain time after I rush home from work, get them 25 minutes away through traffic, drop them off. Okay, we have two hours all by ourselves. What do we want to do? I don't know. Did you think about a restaurant? No. What do you feel like eating? I don't know. And then we stare at each other and we're both disappointed and we, we spend two hours in utter misery. Then we get the kids and go home. It's tough, okay? But here's the best tip I can give you. This is what we found. It's less about the form of a date night or the form of a whatever it is. And it's more about, okay, you need to have a portion of your waking hours ceasing from the regular demands of your work. And for you... It's being with children, okay? So if you can regularly plan times where you are not the one responsible for the children, that is your version of rest right now. And, and what we found in our marriage was that just didn't work where we could both be in on that no child time because we couldn't afford babysitting on the one hand and we hated the, the whole family date exchange, Okay. And so just for a season of our lives, we just said, it's okay that I'm, honey, I'm sending you off to coffee, okay? You're going and getting coffee on Saturday morning all by yourself, or you're going shopping, or you're doing whatever you're doing. And that was a cessation from the regular demands of her time. And it, and it wasn't perfect, and there's just no escaping children. They're omnipresent in one sense. <laughs> so you just kind of trip through that season, but you'll get through it, I promise. Yeah. Okay, friends, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to pray for us, and I hope you have lots of good rest this afternoon. Father, you are our rest, and as Ed reminded us, Jesus Christ specifically is our rest. We rest from our works in trying to please you because Jesus pleased you on our behalf. Thank you for the gospel in that. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us apply that principle to the, to the physical uh, scheduling decisions we made about how we use our time, Lord. Help us to recreate in who you are. Help us to take pleasure in the things that you call beautiful. And Father, to turn away from the things that you call ugly. Do this, Lord, because we love you and we want to show that we, that we want to display this to a world that you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.